And this morning, we want to continue to look at the things that God has for us in the Bible. And I encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 2 as we continue in the journey with Mark, as he has recorded really the history of Christ's life and gives it from his vantage point as he was uh, really a young guy that was there uh, observing all these things, taking notes, recording these uh, uh, really historical moments of people being healed, lives being changed and saved, and the message and the truth that Christ has for all of us today. So Mark chapter 2, there's an outline that's in the bulletin available for you. I encourage you to take a look at that as well and uh, use that to follow along as we uh, study together. And uh, there we go. Let me read Mark chapter 2. Jesus has just been journeying around the area, and it says, and he passed by. He saw Levi. Levi would be the same as Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that while he was reclining at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, it's those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do, you, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast. Can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of shrunk, unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it. And the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. And this is a great little section where Jesus Christ begins by calling Matthew and says to follow me. It's interesting that we're on Palm Sunday today. And on Palm Sunday, there were many people celebrating the coming of Christ. They were excited that as He came into Jerusalem, it was an historic moment because they thought their Savior has arrived, the Messiah is here, and He's going to set them free from the bondage of Rome. They thought that Jesus was going to make life better here on earth. They didn't understand what it meant to follow Jesus, and that's the problem. Because so many of them were celebrating Christ because He's going to somehow make it more comfortable on earth, get rid of Roman rule, when in point of fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're really a follower of Jesus, in many ways life becomes more difficult. So Jesus Christ is coming and challenging you and me to be His followers. I'm going to show you four ways that Christ challenges you and me to be a follower of His. That comes right from this passage. And the first thing that I noticed of what it means to really follow Jesus is this. Jesus Christ, to follow Him, you've got to engage with any person that needs the Lord. Anybody. Jesus did that. Look at this text. Reading again. As He passed by, He saw Levi, or Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors in those days to the Jewish population were considered to be traitors. Because tax collectors, unlike today, we love tax collectors today. April 15th is right around the corner. We can't wait to give more to the government. 
But in those days, they resisted. And the reason they resisted, because Matthew was a tax collector, probably he was one that in this particular area was uh, able to receive tariff fees as people would come into that area. If they're going to import anything, they had to pay him to bring their import items into this territory. What tax collectors would do in those days is the Roman government would require X amount of dollars, or in their coin that they would use in those days, that had to be collected. And then the tax collector could collect anything he wants above that. And so Matthew could charge anything he wants. And if anybody tried to run from them, they would have the Roman government on their tail. And so they were considered to be traitors because they they were always taxing at higher rates than the government required so that they can get rich. So Matthew is one of those people that the Jewish population considered to be a traitor. And so, therefore, he was a hated group, and that's why, as you read through here, you'll notice that tax collectors and sinners are considered to be synonyms. They are much the same. And so here, as we see again, he is the tax in the tax booth. He said to them, follow me. And he got up and he followed him, and it happened that as he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. The thing I notice about this that really captures my attention is Christ dining with tax collectors and sinners. That's the theme. He says, I want you to follow me, but I can't get you to follow me if you don't know who I am. I want you to understand who I am, so I will engage with you. I will dine with you. We will gather around the dining room table in that climate, sitting at somebody's home, eating together with them is a high calling of hospitality. It was an immediate connection, probably deeper than maybe in our society today. And I noticed these things about signs of following Jesus based upon this text. That number one, if you're following Jesus, you leave behind your sinful past. It's in Luke chapter uh, 5 that we notice that the way Luke records the same story is that Matthew left everything behind. You can't say you're following Jesus if you're still living in the sin of your past. That's not following Jesus. You can't say you're following Jesus simply because you say you're doing it, but you're never leaving behind your sinful past. Matthew left behind his sinful ways so he could follow Jesus. It's one or the other. There's no gray area there. And so that's one of the highest signs of following Christ. Also, you engage in a non-judgmental way, in a, in a setting to really connect with them. He never judged these tax collectors and sinners. You'll notice that he built on the common areas of interest. They would gather together around this table, and maybe they talked about the government. Maybe they talked about Roman. Maybe they talked about some of the sporting events. We don't know. But he connected with them at a level that made sense. As Matthew gathered his friends who are tax collectors, he had a sphere of influence. He brought them to Jesus so that Jesus could connect with them. You love the person rather than judge the sin. You never see Jesus judging true sinners. He judged Pharisees who were self-righteous people, and justifiably so. But Jesus never judged the sinners. He didn't call me to judge the sinners. God has never, as I talked to our class on Wednesday nights, God has not delegated to you and to me a judgment of sinners. God has delegated to you and me a love of people who need Jesus. 
That's our obligation. I'm not here to force-feed righteousness into sinful people. You bring them to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, and you support them for life change. You go along with them. Some people might say, well, it sounds like you're compromising sort of a relativistic, sinful, righteous living. Jesus gathered together with these people, and it's interesting to me, as He gauged with them, did not judge them, and many of them were following Him. He was bringing them out of a past way of life into a new way of life, and that's what God does for us. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Billy Graham died, and uh, Joy and I watched the uh, memorial of his life, and it was just really fantastic. I mean, it was like old-school church that we grew up with, some of the same songs, some of the great testimonies. And, and I remember after Billy Graham died, I wrote a, read a couple of articles in some of the media that was out there, and they really wrote a scathing attack on the character of Billy Graham. And they did it through his kids. They talked about how his kids were divorced and their lives were a mess, And so, therefore, it was clear indication that he was an absentee father, really didn't love the children, and really it was a a, a horrible testimony to the life of Billy Graham. And and I thought, boy, you know, I'm sure, you know, we all have kids that sometimes don't do things they should do. But this seemed over the top. And then when I watched the memorial service and all of his children got up there and shared, I was very touched as to where they are today. I want you to watch one of them. And I'm just amazed and want to say a little bit about her testimony as Ruth Graham shares her story and her journey of coming to Jesus Christ. So take a look and listen. But I have my own Billy Graham story, so I'm going to tell you that one. And I've told it many times, and some of you have maybe heard it many times, but it bears repeating because to me it speaks to the essence of who my father was and is. After 21 years, my marriage ended in divorce. I was devastated. I floundered. I did a lot wrong. The rug was pulled out from under me. My family thought it would be a good idea for me to move away, to get a fresh start somewhere else. So I decided to live near my older sister and her family and near a good church. The pastor of that church introduced me to a handsome widower, and we began to date fast and furiously. My children didn't like him, but I thought, you know, they were almost grown. They didn't know what they could, they couldn't tell me what to do. I knew what was best for my life. My mother called me from Seattle. My father called me from Tokyo. They said, honey, why don't you slow down? Let us wait to get to know this man. They had never been a single parent. They had never been divorced. What did they know? So being stubborn, willful, and sinful, I married a man, this man, on New Year's Eve. And within 24 hours, I knew I'd made a terrible mistake. After five weeks, I fled. I was afraid of him. What was I going to do? I wanted to go talk to my mother and my father. It was a two-day drive. Questions swirled in my mind. What was I going to say to Daddy? What was I going to say to Mother? What was I going to say to my children? I'd been such a failure. 
What were they going to say to me? You, we, we're tired of fooling with you. We told you not to do it. You've embarrassed us. And let me tell you, you women will understand you don't want to embarrass your father. You really don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. <laughs> and many of you know that we live on the side of a mountain. And as I wound myself up the mountain, I rounded the last bend in my father's driveway, and my father was standing there waiting for me. As I got out of the car, he wrapped his arms around me and he said, welcome home. There was no shame, there was no blame, there was no condemnation, just unconditional love. And you know, my father was not God, but he showed me what God was like that day. When we come to God with our sin, our brokenness, our failure, our pain and our hurt, God says, welcome home. And that invitation is open for you. Thank you, and God bless you. I wanted you to hear her story. It's just amazing. You think about that. If you're, especially if you're Billy Graham, but for any of us as parents, we might have had our children somewhere on that journey where they are, as she talks about it, sinful and a failure, disobedient to God, disobedient to their own family. And just imagine if you stop stop that snapshot right there after she divorced her husband after a couple of decades of marriage, or stopped the story just after she was told, don't marry this widower, and she married him and then realized it was a failure and fled from him as well. And after two broken, failed marriages, you just sort of stopped her story right there. And somebody comes along and just sort of judges and condemns her at that point. It tells her what an embarrassment you are to God, to Billy Graham, to your family, to believers everywhere. And just judged her and slammed her for that behavior. If you just stopped at that moment and issued that edict, it would have damaged probably for the rest of her life her heart and her mind. But you let the story play out. You give it time. You let God do what only God does best, change hearts and lives. And then when the opportune comes for Billy Graham, the dad, to see his daughter, the prodigal child, come home, he embraces her with unconditional love, no shame, no blame. That's the end of the story. I'm thankful that God sometimes gives us opportunity to live long enough to be patient enough, to be understanding enough, to be Christ-like enough, to see Him complete the story of people's lives. And what Jesus did with these tax collectors and sinners is just begin the journey with them, not to judge them, but with unconditional love to welcome them to become a follower of His. For you and me, it means the people that we work with, the people that live next door to us, the people in the club, the people who are our friends, who are our family, their stories aren't completed yet. Their story is still in process. And I don't think any of us have the right to determine that their story is done and so now it's time for me to judge them 
My job is to walk alongside them, to love them, to let them see what the love of Jesus looks like, to engage with them. Whatever their faults or flaws may be, so that God can complete the story and help them to know Jesus the way we know Jesus, if you are a follower of Christ. That's, that's what it means to follow Christ, to engage with people even when we disagree, to engage with people whose values are different than mine, to engage with people who may have spite about the biblical truths that we believe in, but to engage with people to help finish the story because you never know when that day will come, when that person that we think is so sinful is suddenly welcomed into the arms of Christ. That's what it means to follow Christ. One of the things we're talking about is to each one reach one right now. Each one reach one. Whoever that may be, even for next Sunday, on Easter Sunday, when people are so receptive to coming to church, for each one to reach one and engage with those who need Jesus. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Second thing that it means to follow Jesus is to follow Him and overcome the criticisms that will come our way. Because not everybody's going to agree with us. Even if we're the most loving, kind person in the world, they're going to disagree and they may criticize, as is in the case of the Pharisees. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that He was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to His disciples, why is He eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Sort of like the old story of why does a bank robber rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why does Jesus dine in the home of sinners? Because those are the people that need Jesus. And so there's a lot of people that love to pick apart the character of Christ as he might be displayed in us. I've been criticized for all kinds of things, from uh, quoting Time magazine to my pants being too long to riding a motorcycle in Sandswick Chapel. I've had lots of criticism. And uh, when you're in a public arena, you sort of get a lot of attacks. But sometimes we have this mischaracterization of who Jesus is. As I grew up, this was the Jesus I always saw. That was the Jesus that I would see in somebody's living room, right? You probably have Some of you are at least close to my old age, so you can remember that Jesus. You, you would get wallet-sized pictures. Remember? You'd get wallet-sized pictures of this Jesus right here. And every time I look at that picture of Jesus, I think, He's very, very holy, very sanctified. I'm not sure I can ever approach Him. Then there's this Jesus. This is the Jesus that when I look at Him, I hear the words, I'm so disappointed in you, David. <laughs> Don't you get that? He's just sort of, sort of casting down, oh, if only you were better. If only you could improve, shame on you. I hope you improve. I'll love you when you get better. But in the meanwhile, keep your distance. And I love the little, the little goat, goat thing there. You know, some people are, are, are like that Jesus and always kind of looking down. Here's the Jesus that was gathered with Matthew and the other tax collectors and sinners, as they are said. They're having fun. I like this Jesus. I want that Jesus in my life. That Jesus that actually smiles, not criticize. And there's going to be people that are going to criticize because he's hanging out with these ne'er-do-wells. That's okay. 
because you are only living one life and you have one chance to reach people for Jesus. Imagine if Jesus lived today. If Jesus lived today, this is who he'd be hanging out with, right here. And he'd have a, have a little tattoo there, a heart, Father with a cross in it. And if Jesus walked into our church and began preaching looking like this, how many of you would take out the registration card and write your anonymous note of criticism? But these are the people, I don't, I don't know their hearts. I'm, I don't want to judge on the outside. But my guess is they're not going to go to church the next day. But I think that's the equivalent of today, of what Jesus was doing in that day that we have an opportunity to reach people that need Jesus Christ. And I'm not here to judge them. I uh, ride a motorcycle and sometimes have been seen sitting with a guy who has a beer and some guys with a cigarette. And frankly, if they need Jesus, I'm supposed to love them. I'm not supposed to separate from them. So, if you're a follower of Jesus, you engage with those that need Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you overcome the criticism of those that don't like the way you engage with people who need Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then it means your faith thrives. Your faith thrives from your identity in Christ and who He is in your relationship with Jesus that's personal and intimate, and it's not based upon performance. It's not based upon what you do. Here, notice the next section of the Scripture. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Well, they are called to fast. Sometimes they believe that on the Day of Atonement once a year, they are called to fast. They're certainly to have a Sabbath rest, and it may be fasting from food as well. And Leviticus talks about that. But what the Pharisees did over here, the Pharisees decided fasting maybe once a year is not good enough. If you're really good, you will fast every Monday and Thursday. So the Pharisees put into uh, the way people lived a new law and ed- edict that says, you've got to fast every Monday and Thursday. And if you're not doing that, you're not really as righteous as you should be. So they have a standard of what righteousness looks like. So then they come to Jesus and they said to him, why, why are John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fasting, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, well, while the bridegroom is with them, that's Jesus is the bridegroom, where the bride is the church. The attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? And then he continues, so long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. I think one of the essence of what I would take from that for practical application today is that I don't base my following Jesus on performing well for him, fasting on Monday and Thursday, sort of these new rules of how people should live their lives. My following Jesus is based upon my relationship with the bridegroom as a bride that loves the bridegroom, that comes out of a relationship with him, not what I do. And a lot of people like to base it upon what they do, not the relationship with Jesus. That's personal. We sort of look down upon those that don't sort of live the life the way we think they should live their lives. So we got these sort of these rules and regulations and sort of these ethics and mores of how people should live if they're really, really, really a good Christian. And Jesus says, I'd rather have just a personal relationship. I'm the bridegroom. I've not been crucified. I will be resurrected. And that's what he's talking about. I will be crucified someday. But while I'm here, enjoy me while you have the opportunity. 
Now, I mentioned that Matthew has a story. I'm going to invite Matthew to come back up here. Matthew is one who has been following Christ, but he's been doing it on and off the football field. And here's Matthew number 18 on the field. He's all pro and uh, two Super Bowl champion teams that he's played on. And I still remember the day, and, and Jackie remembers it well, that uh, you were the uh, fifth-round pick of the New England Patriots, and Bill, or no, Robert Kraft calls you up and invites you to be part of the team 10 years ago. And here God has blessed you 10 years later. And just amazing how God has uh, done a good work in your life. Help us to understand a little bit of what it means. You're on this big platform. Uh, People around the world are able to see you at work. And I suppose sometimes they don't like the way the Patriots play. Or, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but you're a follower of Christ on the field, in the locker room, and uh, outside football as well. Tell us what it looks like for you as an NFL player walking and following Christ. Well, good morning, Calvary. It's always good to be home here. Pastor Wakely and Pastor Dave, thank you for this opportunity. Um, it, it's... Uh, it's an it's a interesting question. Uh, I know that we've kind of discussed it. And I know we all have different mission fields. Wherever we work, wherever we live, whether we're in school, on the job, uh, it's our mission field. And my mission field just happens to be uh, in an NFL locker room and, and on a, an NFL football field. But uh, the challenges there are the same that, that as the challenges that all of us face. Uh, you talk about engaging different people groups uh, for the gospel and, and the message of Christ, well, an NFL locker room is a very unique place. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of different things going on, shall we say. So uh, I, I know for me coming in as a young believer, 22 years old, it was a very eye-opening experience. Uh, and I really was quickly introduced to what it looked like when Jesus was hanging out with the tax collectors and the people of his day that people probably said, hey, I don't know about that guy. Mm. There were uh, a lot of those guys around. <laughs> so, uh, but it quickly taught me that, listen, at the end of the day, regardless of uh, who we are, what we've done, where we've been, where we're going, all of us have a need for Jesus in our lives. All of us need his saving grace in our lives. And it doesn't matter uh, how you view someone. Uh, the Bible tells us we've all been made in the image of God. So, therefore, we all have the same basic need for salvation and the need for Christ. And I learned to engage uh, with people in different ways. I think the best way for me is, uh, has always been building relationships. In an NFL locker room, the way you do that is by how you work and prepare and come alongside a guy and try to just build a relationship with him. And, and that's been just a, a joy for me. Uh, Guys that I never would have met growing up here in Orange County, uh, I've been able to meet people from all over the world, even had a teammate from Germany. And it's been uh, such a tremendous uh, opportunity for me. Um, You talk about the critics. Obviously, there are going to be critics involved for all of us. Uh, uh, People are going to feel differently about how we represent the gospel, uh, how vocal we are about our faith. I personally feel like as Christians, we're under under attack today. In, in our society with the, the way people are trying to portray things, the way our culture is moving, the direction it's headed in. It's not easy being a Christian. But the great thing about it is it's never been easy being a Christian. Uh, the Bible has shown us that. And, and the way I look at it is this. If they persecuted Jesus and killed him, who are we? Yeah. 
yes, we're going to be persecuted. It's difficult being a Christian, but I think we should embrace that. And, and the, the point that you made about identity, uh, that really speaks volumes to me. Uh, you know, I've been able to experience a great deal of success professionally, and I've been around people who have uh, reached the mountaintop, so to speak, in their professions. But you still see people without Christ searching hmm. Super Bowl titles, MVPs, Pro Bowls, whatever it may be, it's not enough. Hmm. And I think for us as Christians, we can anchor ourselves uh, in what Christ did on Calvary. Uh, Paul writes in uh, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Hmm. So as Christians, we have to, every day as we wake up, die to ourselves and realize when I walk out the door, when I'm interacting with people, I'm not representing myself. Mm. I'm representing Jesus first and foremost. And mm-hmm. I think for me, that's been great. Sure, I play football, but I'm not a football player who's a Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to play football. Yeah. And I think all of us, whatever our profession is, teachers, police officers, uh, businessmen and women, we're Christians who happen to do whatever it is that we're doing. So uh, that would be something that's been very challenging for me mm. as an NFL football player. People want to tell you, hey, you're great, this, you've won that, mm-hmm. you've accomplished this and that. Well, at the end of the day, none of that matters. Yeah. Uh, my role as a servant of, of Jesus Christ is ultimately what's going to matter at the end of the day. When I die and I go to meet my maker, he's not going to say, hey, you guys lost that Super Bowl to Philly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't he's th- not going to be concerned with that, which I'm very excited about. <laughs> so... Uh, that identity piece is really uh-huh. big uh, for all of us, uh, no matter where we are in our walks with Christ, having a firm grasp and, and understanding of who we are in light of what Christ did on Calvary is huge. And it's huge in an NFL locker room. Uh, unfortunately, I see men struggle with that, mm. uh, but it's my mission field. So I go. feel like I'm one of the missionaries been sent out to the uh, Siberian tundra over there <laughs> yes. in Boston yes. Yes. And, and trying to share uh, right. with men in the locker room. All right. Well, Matthew, we are so pleased to see you faithfully. Here you are in the field. You play, and then you pray uh, with guys that you've played against and probably hit them as hard as you could, and then you come and pray together. So let's... It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Sometimes as a pastor, you think, could I hit them as hard as I want to? And then, no, I wouldn't do that. But um, in any case, we're so pleased uh, for your life. Going back there and then meeting a beautiful wife like Shazad, Dr. Slater, as she is, and so we're so pleased for your two little kids as well. That God has blessed you and your real testimony to Jesus Christ. So thank you for all your good work and your faithfulness. Yay, these 10 years, and some people kind of get sideways as they go off that journey, but God's kept you centered, and I think your wife's going to help keep you centered as well. Absolutely. So so, (laughs) we're glad for that. So thank you, Matthew, for sharing a little bit this morning. Okay, let's give him a hand. Thank you. Let me just finish up with this last thing. To follow Jesus, it requires a new heart to live this life. Jesus talks and uses the analogy of something we don't use a lot here today, uh, this whole idea of a wine cloth or wine skin. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away and from it and the new one the, from the old and the worst tear results. No one puts new wine in old wineskins. 
Otherwise the wine will burst and the skins and the wine is lost and the skins as well, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. In those days, of course, they would take the wine and they would squish it together, the grapes, and they would put it into wineskins, something like these, and then they would use that to allow the fermentation process to occur. Sometimes they'd actually use an animal, an animal skin, and tie that together so that the wine could ferment inside that new wine skin. And Jesus' point is very simple, that the righteousness that we speak of here, of an obedient walk before God, living according to biblical instruction, is not something you try to put into a heart that has never been made new. If you try to take the righteousness that we talk about here and give it to and force-feed it into the heart of a sinner, they'll just break apart because you need a new wineskin for new wine to be able to ferment, change, and grow. And so therefore, one of the things that Jesus is trying to let us know is that you can't force-feed righteousness into an unrepentant heart. So don't tell those who are the tax collectors and sinners how righteous they should live their lives. You bring them to Jesus for His forgiveness so that He can give them a new heart. So with a new heart, they have what is essentially a new wineskin so that when Christ fills that old, fills that new wineskin, that, that wine of Christ is able to expand and grow. So please, don't try to force-feed righteousness into old wineskins of sinful hearts. Bring them to Jesus and let Him give them a new heart that could receive the life of Christ and grow. And here's, here's a secondary application. For a lot of us who have followed Jesus a long time, let's make sure our hearts are like a new wineskin because Jesus Christ is living. He is constantly working. He's not static. He's not stopped. And whatever Jesus wants to do, I need to be attentive to Jesus' work in my life as He teaches me as I grow in His Word. I want to be able to expand. When Christ does something in my life, and it's maybe different than what I've ever done before, or maybe what I'm experiencing is more challenging than everything I've ever had to experience before, and I like that used, the way it used to be, but now things have changed, I need to be able to expand with what Christ is doing, not hang on to the old wineskin of the past. Because some Christians sometimes, are, their heart is beginning to look like this, and then when Jesus wants to do a new work, that heart begins to break, because it's rigid, stiff, and not flexible. And so for those of us who have walked with Jesus a long time, it's important for us to remember that our, that our heart is like that wineskin that needs to continually be flexible, open to change, not compromised to biblical truth, but the relevancy of how Christ may choose to work sometimes changes. And I need to be responsive to that change. Personally, I've gone through a lot of change over this last couple of months. It's not always easy. Some of you are going through some change. It's not always easy. But I want my heart to always be flexible with what Jesus is choosing to do. Because the last thing God needs is a rigid, stiff-hearted Christian whose heart is inflexible 
and prone to breakage because I can't flex with what Christ is calling me into. And it may be a ministry opportunity, maybe a relationship, whatever it may be, I need to constantly be fresh and new with the wine of Christ working through me. So I invite you into that, and I invite anybody who needs to come to Christ for his salvation. As Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, who hears this word and believes in Jesus and God who sent me, Jesus said, has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. This new life is what Jesus offers all of us. So I invite you into that new life if you've never believed in Jesus. We're not asking you to sort of force righteousness into a heart that's not ready. You've got to come to Christ and he'll give you a new heart so that his life can live out through you. So we invite you to do that. And even as we worship now, I'm going to invite the band to come on up. We have these communion tables sit around. If you'd like to take communion to remember the body and the blood of Christ, just, it's just remembering him. It's not gaining favor with God through that. It's just remembering that he died for me and his life is for me. And I want to stay fresh and current with the life of Christ today. Take the communion. We also invite you that, especially with Easter coming up, who is it that you would like to invite to come to hear the Easter message next Sunday? We have over here on the wall a prayer wall of names that people have put in the past. And I invite you, even as we worship during this last closing segment, to come up here and write down a name of somebody that needs Christ, someone that you might engage with this week, someone whose life is probably not living the life the way you think they should or the way the Scriptures teach, but that's beside the point. We're called to love them and let Jesus change them. So I encourage you to come over here and even write their name on there and pray for them and let that be more of a tangible way of saying, yes, I want to reach this person and engage with them for the cause of Christ. Each one reach one to bring them to Jesus Christ. So let's pray as we worship together. Help us, Father, as we come before you and we come to worship you, we come to honor you. God, help us to walk the walk that you've called us to live that is following Christ. That means we engage with those that need Jesus. We overcome the critics that don't always like the way we do things. But we understand that a relationship with us, with Jesus not the performance of our lives so that we can bring people to Christ to give them new hearts, new wineskins that breathe and grow with a living, resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us as we worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.